Good morning. Well, I bring greetings from Capitol Hill Baptist. Grateful for the opportunity to spend time with you this morning. We have often prayed for you. We've delighted in the fact that there's a gospel witness here and have heard not only many good stories of what God's doing, but have been encouraged to just see, as you have now chosen to be here to be a part of this fellowship, what God's doing. So as we begin, let me just pray for us one more time. Lord, thank you for the opportunity for us to study your word and to think together. Pray, help us this morning as we worship you. Help us to focus especially on Christ. We pray in your son's name. Well, sin's a very common word in Christianity, and appropriately so, because it defines our central problem in our relationship with God. Sin is any violation of God's law, any way in which we rebel against Him, any way we choose to go our own way. When you struggle with sin, what does it look like? What sins do you struggle with? To answer these questions, we want to Think together through Psalm 130. So if you've got a Bible, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you there. Turn there to Psalm 130. And we want to think together a little bit about what this psalm has to say. As you're turning there, we want to give you a little background on the psalms. The psalms are a collection of 150 poems written to believers that cover a range of human experience. The psalms are much beloved because they often talk about pain and suffering and sorrow, and those who struggle can find much of their life in the Psalms. They are much beloved, especially because of the suffering, but also because of the brutal honesty and the hard things that the psalmists often write about. You'll see there as you turn to Psalm 130, so if you're new to the Bible, the, the chapter is the, uh, the big number, and then I'm going to refer to verses, which are the small numbers, the superscripts you'll see there. Uh, you see, at the very top, um, it says, A Song of Ascent, the superscript of the psalm. The Israelites probably sung this prayer on their way to Jerusalem as one of the major Israelite festivals were going on. Psalm 130 is literally a song of ascent. For it climbs from the abyss of the depths of depression and goes to the heights of hope in God. And literally, we're going to see as we work through the psalm a progression. And here's the four major themes that we go through the stanzas. Mercy, forgiveness, waiting, and hope. Mercy, forgiveness, waiting, and hope. So let me read to us Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Well, in our time together this morning, I want to ask one fundamental question and then answer it. Here's the question. 
What should we do in response to our sin? What should we do in response to our sin? And I'm going to answer it by working through those four stanzas, those four ideas. So number one, ask for God's mercy. That's verses one and two. Number two, cherish God's forgiveness. It's verses three and four. Number three, wait for the Lord. Verses five and six. And number four, hope in the Lord. Verses seven and eight. My prayer for you is that as we consider these things, you'll learn to fight sin with God's strength, and you'll grow in your sense of being forgiven in Christ. So, as we begin, that question again. What do we do in response to our sin? Number one, ask for God's mercy. Let me read verses one and two again. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Well, the psalmist is praying to God, and he starts with this phrase in verse 1, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Now, interesting, in the Bible, depths often refers to being caught in dangerous or deep waters. It's a powerful image for folks who are mostly land-based and not seafaring. You know, when I traveled here with my son, we flew on a long plane ride. But back then, in the psalmist day, in order to travel, people often went on ships. And as they went on ships, they faced treacherous waters and dangerous seas. So this, in his day, would have been a common image for them to understand, because that's primarily how they traveled from one continent to another. Well, you see this term used often in Scripture, Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me. Or Psalm 88, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of the dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Again and again, when scripture used this phrase depths, it's conveying this picture of being trapped in waters, being overwhelmed by waves, being overwhelmed by the floodwaters. Now, when I was a, a kid, my parents and I tro- traveled to Florida for a typical family vacation in Florida. And we had this day where we were at the pool. We were at the hotel, and we decided to go to the pool. And so, you know, family, we get towels, we get all dressed up for the pool, and we head out over to the pool. I don't know what overcame me, but still to this day, uh, I was surprised that as I saw the pool in the distance, I suddenly started sprinting. And I ran, and maybe it was I wanted to get cool, maybe I just wanted to just get into the water, but I left my family behind, and I ran, and I ran, and I ran, and I leapt into the pool as soon as I got to it. Two problems. Number one, I still had everything on me, my my flip-flops, my towel, everything I was wearing. Number two, I didn't know how to swim. And I had jumped into the deep end of the pool. So, what do you expect in that moment? I was in the depths. I was flipping and flopping like an awkward fish trying to figure out how to get through that water. Well, on that day, kindly, a lady who had just noticed it, she was on the side of the pool. She dumped in, swam across, grabbed me, put me on one side. And as if that weren't enough, she then swam across, grabbed my flip-flops and my towel, swam over, gave it back to me, swam over, picked up other things, swam back, gave it to me. Then she got out, and she walked away. 
Well, you know, the psalmist is in a miserable place. He's having a really hard time. That's why he's crying out to God in his prayers. I wonder what specific circumstances you're facing this morning that are hard for you. Are you struggling this morning? And if so, what are you struggling with? Are you frustrated with your children? You're struggling with your circumstances. Maybe it's a job, or maybe as a student, you're struggling in school. Maybe you're uncertain about your future. Maybe at your job, there's a boss that doesn't really like you, and you're having a hard time with them. Maybe it's some kind of sexual sin, and you've been wrestling with it. You just don't feel like you've been able to defeat it. Maybe you're hurt by some family member or some friend, and the conversations that you've been having have just not been going well. And you're avoiding them, or just not dealing with it. Or maybe just simply you tend to ignore the problem. You just don't deal with the problem. And by doing that, you create even more misery for yourself in making the situation harder. You know, whatever your position is, whatever you're struggling with, whatever your misery right now, the psalmist understands. He's in a difficult position. And so he starts by praying to God and beginning with these words. Out of the depths, Lord, I cry to you. The psalmist knows that his ultimate problem, though, is not his troubles, but his own sin. We'll see that in just a moment as we look at verses 3 and 4. Do you see how sin brings the greatest misery to our lives? We're prone to give a lot of attention to the difficulties, the frustrations, the struggles, the anxieties that we have. We want them to go away, and we talk a lot about them. We think a lot about them. We actually whine and complain to our friends a lot about them. But if you dig down to the bottom of your misery, you're going to find that the greatest enemy is not your difficult circumstances. It's your sin. Your greatest enemy is your own sin. Do you know what your sin is? And if so, what are you doing about it? Some of you might be like me. In the midst of trouble, in dealing with my sin... I do everything possible to get through the problem on my own. I just figure out, okay, here's how I can deal with it, and I don't really want to get others involved, I'm just going to press through. I don't want to humbly ask God for help. I don't want to confess my sin to others. I don't want to have to be vulnerable to others. I don't want to actually have to get others involved in my mess. And yet, look at what the psalmist does. He asks God to hear him, and to be attentive to his plea. The psalmist has no hesitation in turning to God and asking for help. In verse 2, he says, Lord, hear my voice. Hear me in the midst of my trouble. Let your ear be attentive to my pleas. Or as one translation put it, pay attention, Lord. Open up your ears. Listen to my cries for mercy. When's the last time you asked God for help? When's the last time where you got over your pride and you were humble enough to actually say, Lord, as simple as it is, help me. Now notice what the psalmist is asking for. Verse 2, mercy. Mercy. Mercy is God's undeserved kindness to those who are in misery. Mercy is God's undeserved kindness to those who are in misery. What do you typically ask God for? You know, if you're struggling, typically you ask Him for relief from your troubles. You don't want to deal with the sickness 
or the bad marriage, or the sexual sin, or the anger, or the difficult job. The easiest thing to do is simply ask God, make it go away. I don't want this anymore. Deliver me from this. Is that prayer familiar to you? You ever prayed like that? God, help me by making this pain go away. And you know what, God? If you really love me, you provide relief from these troubles. You ever say something like that to God? Relief from your burdens is not the same thing as mercy. In his mercy, God may or may not take away your troubles. But the greatest act of mercy of God that God has provided is by providing a way for your sins to be dealt with. That's the greatest thing that God can do for the sake of your own soul. He sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. He sent Jesus to atone for your sins. Though he was just and he could have called us, as Jeremy read in Romans 3, according to his own wrath, to send us to hell. Instead, what he chose to do is send a son to die for us. Jesus paid the price that we deserve to pay. And yet he stood in our place so that we could be reconciled back to God. That is the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus rose again and conquered death on our behalf so that now we don't have to be scared anymore. You know, on Christmas, when you're giving and receiving gifts, you can get a variety of reactions. I don't know if you've ever been in that moment. You know, you worked really hard to find that great gift for a family member or friend, and so you give that gift, and they open it up, and they go, oh, that's nice. You think, oh, that wasn't the gift they really wanted. <laughs> or you give that gift, and the person opens it up, and they say, wow, I've been really wanting this. I am so excited to get it. I usually don't get that reaction on Christmas or any of the gifts I get. <laughs> God's mercy through Christ is the greatest of all gifts. And if that's true, and I think it is, God's mercy should be something we ask for often. When's the last time you asked God to be merciful to you? Or do you spend most of your time pleading for relief from your troubles? Just think for a moment. What's more common in your prayers? One of the most fundamental things we can do as Christians is to orient our life to God's mercy daily by asking for it. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The psalmist is finding himself in a very difficult situation. But he knows that his ultimate problem is not his misery. He knows his ultimate problem is his own sin that has to be dealt with. And so what does he do? He begins by praying and asking God for mercy. So again, we ask the question, what should we do in response to our own sin? Number two, cherish God's forgiveness. And you'll see that in verses three and four. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
So the psalmist starts out in verse 3 with this question. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now this phrase, mark iniquities, is a little odd if you think about it because this is not the language we use as we talk to our friends. Hey, are you marketing iniquities today? (laughs) That's not the normal conversations that we have. But, you know, iniquity there, verse 3 and verse 8, is a synonym for sin. Sin is any rebellion we have against God. It's choosing our own way. It's fighting back against God and his word. You know, we could reword this phrase, mark iniquities, and ask the question like, if you, Lord, were keeping track of my sins, who could stand? Or if you were to keep a record of my sins and keep them endlessly in mind, who could actually stand before you? Now, I want you to imagine this. You enter into a courtroom, and there is a judge. And the judge reads aloud a record of your sins. On Monday, you got angry. On Tuesday, you said a harsh word. On Wednesday, you lied to a coworker. On Thursday, on Friday, on Saturday, on Sunday. And you know what the judge does? The judge recounts every sin you've ever committed. And he recounts it with every detail possible. And you feel like, oh my gosh, he knows all of the sins. He knows everyone I've committed. He hasn't forgotten or overlooked a single sin. I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom where the judge then pronounces a sentence on a person. It's an intimidating thing. And so the judge looks right at you and he says, you're guilty. You're condemned. The penalty for your sin is death. And eternal separation from God. So judges, take this infidel away and throw this person in hell. Oh, oh, the weight, the consequences of our sin, the folly, all of that bearing down on your life. That's what the psalmist is saying. If you, God, could keep a record of our wrongs and continue to hold them against us, none of us could stand before you. We would be condemned forever. And we would receive the just penalty for our sin. But then comes the most important conjunction in the entire Bible. B-U-T, but. And what you see there is there's a turn that's about to A delightful turn. But with you, there is forgiveness. With God, there's the wonderful possibility of forgiveness. Condemnation for your sin is not the final word. The gospel is. Jesus came to die on the cross for your sins so that you no longer have to be condemned, but you could be set Free from that condemnation. Forgiveness now is the final word for your life. You will be forgiven for all the wrong you have committed. This is the most delicious and delightful part of Christianity. There is an answer for our sins. We are no longer condemned. What wonderful news that is. That is our ultimate hope. That someone has paid the price for us so that we can actually now stand before God and be reconciled back to Him. That is the good news. 
that we are no longer chained to our sin, no longer chained to our sin. There is no barrier in communion with God. Through Christ, through Christ's death, through his life, through his resurrection, you can be forgiven and your heart can finally be set free. Do you cherish God's forgiveness? Is that something you actually rejoice in? Is that something that matters to you? You know, there's a lot of things we rejoice in in our life. A lot of things that we take great joy in. Whether that be particular people or relationships, whether that be things that we receive, say like a Christmas present or a birthday present, or, you know, you might be like some of the, my best friends who are techies, and the latest iPhone is a big deal to them as soon as it comes out. You know, uh, you might be a foodie, like another good friend I have. He loves eating out and having dessert. Like, all these things we take great delight in. But do you delight in God's forgiveness? Do you relish the fact that God has forgiven you in Christ? If you find no joy in God's forgiveness for you, that probably says something about the state of your heart. Forgiveness is to release someone from the burden they have created, is to let go of the punishment they deserve. The judge says to you, because of Christ, you're no longer condemned, but set free. What wonderful news that is. What wonderful news. There is no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Forgiven people should actually live different. They should no longer walk around as if they're still condemned. Have you ever done that? You know, between your pity party or your guilty feelings or your disappointment in yourself or being hard on yourself, you don't act like a forgiven sinner. No, in in doing that, then you actually act as if you've forgotten about what God has done for you in Christ. But because God is merciful, he delights in showing forgiveness even to the worst of sinners. The beauty of the gospel is that forgiveness for you is free, though for God it came at a great cost. The psalmist adds this phrase that you may be feared at the end of verse 4. You see that there. Fear in the Bible is not a fear of heights or a fear of spiders. Fear, when we think about it in the Bible, is reverence, honor, glory. It's, it's, it's honoring and respecting and glorifying in God. Forgiven sinners should actually live changed lives. The reality of forgiveness should not just affect how you live yesterday or in the future, but it actually should change how you live today. This very day, it should change the nature of what this day actually looks like. The question is, does it for you? If I were to actually get involved in your life and to talk to some of the people who know you the best, co-workers, friends, fellow students, parents, uh, other people in your neighborhood, and say to them, well, what's he like or what's she like? And if they were to say, no, you know, he's definitely a sinner, if you got to know him, because I see what his life is like. Or would they say, he's definitely a Christian, because he acts as if God has been merciful to him and has forgiven him. 
Forgiven sinners can't help but orient their lives around God. They live God-fearing, God-honoring, God-exalting lives. And if your life doesn't give evidence to these things, then you need to talk to one of the elders, a pastor, a godly person, to ask them, help me think about how can I orient my life around God's mercy and God's forgiveness to me in Christ. The psalmist knows that sinners can't stand before a holy God, so he rejoices, he cherishes God's forgiveness for him. And it reminds him that forgiven sinners live for God and not for themselves. So that brings us back to our central question again. What should we do in response to our sin? Number three, wait on the Lord. Verses five and six. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than a watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. So the psalmist is waiting for God, and he is not waiting for forgiveness. We saw in verse 4, forgiveness has already been given, but now he waits for God himself, for greater intimacy with God, for a closer relationship with God. So what do we learn from these verses about what the psalmist is actually waiting for? What do we learn about his waiting? Well, uh, he can wait because he puts his hope in God's word. God has revealed himself in his word. So in his word, the psalmist can put his hope. Because it's right there in the word that he'll meet God himself. And he grows in his relationship with God. The word itself promises the psalmist more of God. Then you see there, though, he also waits like a watchman in the night. In verse 6, the psalmist repeats twice this statement. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. Now the psalmist repeats this phrase to put emphasis on it. Typically within the psalms, when you see a phrase repeated like that, it's a way for the psalmist to put emphasis on the phrase. You want to think about when you're reading through something, you take out a yellow highlighter and you put the highlighter across a phrase to emphasize it, to bring it out, to make it more important. Well, that's what he's doing. By simply emphasizing this, saying it again and again to emphasize its importance. As a watchman stays up all night, he yearns for the morning to come. The psalmist yearns for God even more than a watchman yearns for the morning to come. Now, if you are a watchman in the middle of the night, waiting for the morning requires patience and confidence that the morning will actually come. When I was in my 20s, for many summers, I worked as a nurse's aide in a local hospital. And as is typical of a new employee in the hospital, I worked the graveyard shift. So, you know, I show up at the hospital and get all set up and get started at 11 p.m. and then work all the way to 7 a.m. And I did that for months on end throughout my summers. I remember being up in the middle of the night, tired, eager for the sunlight, eager for the morning to come. And I was rather impatient because there was nothing worse than being in the hospital when there was nothing much to do. Having to stand around in the middle of the night, dead tired, and not really have much you have to actually deal with or handle. But I never doubted that the morning would actually come. Like clockwork, the morning would come. The next shift would show up. The new staff would come at 7 a.m. 
And with patience and confidence, I could go home. A Christian needs both patience and confidence in order to wait for the Lord. Patience, because redemption is not done yet. I'm waiting as a sinner who needs Jesus, not just when I was saved, but every single day until glory comes. And I need him every day until I go to the grave. The watchman's confidence that the morning will come is the same as the Christian's confidence that he needs to have God's redemption, and that redemption actually will one day come. Sometimes, when we deal with our own sin, we can be frustrated with God or with ourselves, because we're dealing with the same issues year after year. They just keep coming back. Maybe I don't lie anymore. Maybe I don't gossip anymore. But, oh, pride? It's still a problem. It doesn't seem to go away. So we say to the Lord, Lord... How long? How long am I going to struggle with this kind of sin? How many years am I going to have to fight this? Will this never, ever be done? You know what the Lord says? God says, wait. Wait. The fullness of my redemption is not complete, but it's coming. It has come through Christ, and He will come back again and bring all things to completion. God says, have confidence that I will do what I say. That I will make everything new. I will redeem my people, and I will make them my own, and I will finish what I started. But if you're like me, you have many days when you're impatient. I don't like waiting. I really dislike waiting a good bit. You know, I don't like waiting online at Chick-fil-A, or as we have been, In-N-Out Burgers while we're here. <laughs> Standing online and having a dozen people in front of us and waiting to finally get our food, especially if we show up when we're hungry. I don't like waiting for Amazon to deliver my package. I'd love it to be next day, but often it's five or six or seven days later. I don't like waiting for my wife to return after a trip because, you know, I'm home for several days with five kids and it's overwhelming. <laughs> And so I yearn for her to return. I can't wait much longer. You know, we're conditioned not to wait. We're conditioned to get everything immediately. You know, I stand by the microwave just kind of waiting, even though it's just a minute. Like, my food needs to be done. A minute is just too long. Or even worse, if I can't get that internet connection right now, if, if, if it doesn't connect and I have to wait on it, long gone are those days... We actually have to dial up and get a connection and wait for it to actually... No, actually, I want wireless, or I want Bluetooth, I want 4G, I want it all, right now. Because I can't wait for my connection. I'm standing online at Chick-fil-A, and if i got to wait long, I'm thinking, boy, you guys got to hurry this up, because i got things to do. None of us want to wait. We want everything right now. And the dreadful thing is our culture and our circumstances often condition us to want everything immediately. I want my desires to be met right now. I want my internet connection right now. I want to be fed right now. I don't want to have to wait on it. But the basic posture of a Christian in this life is one of waiting. I wait on God himself. 
My relationship with Him is growing. But I wait for more of God, more intimacy with God, more of a relationship with God. The promises of God in His Word help me to know that my waiting is actually not in vain. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The Word gives me confidence. Confidence that there is more of God. There is more of God to come. That my relationship with the Lord will actually continue to grow. And if I'm patient, and if I persist in the Word, and I persist with God's people, there is more of God to come. The psalmist teaches us to wait patiently for the Lord. Having confidence that even greater than a watchman who waits for the morning, the Lord will come. And who will bring fullness of redemption. That brings us back to our central question one last time. What should we do in response to our own sin? Number four, hope in the Lord. And that's verses seven and eight. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Well, the psalmist now turns to address Israel. He's been praying to the Lord. It's been an individual prayer. And now he turns to Israel to encourage them to hope in God. The, the psalmist has been forgiven. He trusts in the Lord. He trusts that the fullness of redemption, redemption will actually come. And now he wants to give Israel reasons why they should have hope in God. That same hopefulness he has, he wants them to hope in God. Now think about this for just a moment. Isn't this remarkable? Just six verses earlier, this man was in the depths of difficult circumstances and depression. And yet, now, what is he doing? He's an evangelist for God's forgiveness. Look at how God has taken him out of the depths to a place of hopefulness, for now he, he can turn to others, all of Israel, and say, hope in the Lord. He's telling others, about God's hope. In verse 7 he says, The Lord, in the Lord there is steadfast love. In the face of our own sin, God shows faithful, committed, enduring love. That's steadfast love. God has committed himself through his son. He has a committed love because of Jesus Christ. And in that we can find great comfort. For as we sin every day, God persists in his love for us despite our own foolishness. Forgiveness is something anyone can discover for it's based not on anything that we do, but on God's merciful disposition. And God does not change. God is forgiving both now, just as he has been, and he will be for all time. The same forgiving God is the same forgiving God that we get to know. So if you confess your sins and seek God's forgiveness, what is God's response? It's not flippant. It's not unreliable. It's not unpredictable. It's not like human beings who bear grudges, who keep records of wrongs, who struggle to forgive. God is steadfast. He's committed in his love. How many times have I been in a counseling room as I've sat across from a couple or a couple of people and worked through a situation and said to the person, are you willing to forgive them? And they said, I'm not ready yet. Or no. Or I'm really wrestling with forgiving them. God is not like that. 
Don't turn God into one of your friends who are struggling with forgiveness. Don't be reluctant to come to God, even this very day, and seek redemption and forgiveness. Don't ever approach God as if he were an unforgiving friend or spouse. You know, the, the same God that same sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins 2,000 years ago is the same God who rescued the Apostle Paul, who was a murderer, and turned him into this great apostle who preached the gospel to many. It's the same God who raised up the disciples to begin the New Testament church. It's the same God who offers forgiveness to you and to every church in which the gospel is proclaimed. That same God has not changed. That same God offers forgiveness to you today through Christ. Why don't you come to Him? Why do you wait? Why don't you come to Him and accept the forgiveness that He offers to you? Now, verse 7 tells us that God offers plentiful redemption. He's not stingy with His redemption. That says a lot about God's mercy towards us. Now imagine, as I described earlier, I'm standing in the line at Chick-fil-A. And I put in my number one, as I usually do, for my chicken sandwich and my fries and my drink. And I'm waiting there patiently. And then the person comes up at the counter, offers me, what is this tiny little piece of chicken? And this tiny little french fry. And says, have a good day. Well, I'd be a little bit frustrated. I want my food. Don't be stingy with me. Chick-fil-A has promised me chicken. <laughs> well, God's not like that. God is never stingy with his redemption. If he were, we'd be in great trouble. And yet there's plentiful redemption through Christ. God offers us a generous redemption through His Son. We need abundance of redemption because we have a manifold of sin that has to be dealt with. We have abundance of sin in each one of our lives. And so we need a God who is generous with redemption. We have a serious sin problem and God answers our problem with clear and plentiful redemption for us in Christ. And then you see there in verse 8, here again is the gospel. God himself will redeem all of Israel's iniquities. He doesn't leave any sin left behind. Well, we should conclude. Known as Nixon's hitman, the late Chuck Colson once described himself as valuable to the president because I was willing to be ruthless in all things I would get done. Ruthless and brilliant. Those were terms often described of the late Chuck Colson. Colson was actually nicknamed the evil genius of the Nixon administration. In March of 1974, Colson was indicted for conspiring to cover up in what is now the famous Watergate scandals. As Colson faced arrest, a close friend of his got together with him, Thomas Phillips, and gave him a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And Phillips was the chairman of the Raytheon Company, and he was a remarkably successful businessman. But he challenged Colson to consider Christ. Thomas was a committed Christian. He loved Jesus. 
And in the midst of Colson's darkest days, he turned, challenged him to turn to Jesus as the answer for his troubles. You know, despite his skepticism, Colson did read Mere Christianity that upcoming week. He wrestled that week with the question of, am I going to make Christ Lord of my life? And on a Friday morning, sitting in a cottage in the middle of Maine, Colson actually surrendered his life to Christ. He accepted him with this simple prayer. He said, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I accept you. Please come into my life. I commit my life to you. And immediately, his life was changed. Colson writes this. With these few words that morning came a sureness of mind that matched the depth of feeling in my heart. There came something, much more, strength and serenity, a wonderful new assurance about life, a fresh perception of myself and the world around me. In the process, I felt old fears, old tensions, old animosities draining away, and I was coming alive to things I'd never seen before, as if God was filling this barren void I didn't know for so many months, filling it to the brim with a whole new kind of awareness. Well, here was a man who had done great evil in his life, and he turned to God, and what did he do? He asked for mercy. If someone had found the tapes from the Watergate days and handed them over to a judge, what would have the judge done? He would have seen the evidence and condemned him for all of his sins. He would have kept a record of wrongs. And if God kept a record of wrongs, Colson would have been condemned eternally. But despite all the evil he had done, Colson asked for mercy and forgiveness. And his life was forever changed. And interesting, as you follow the course of his life, after he was converted, he did go to prison and serve in prison for a number of years. But after that, because of his time in prison, he dedicated his life to helping prisoners come to know Christ. And he started what we know as Prison Fellowship, the first founder and president of it. And so here's his life. Someone who had committed great evil now comes to a place where he has asked for mercy and forgiveness from Christ and his life is transformed. What does he become for the rest of his life? An ambassador for God's forgiveness. A life changed because a man asks for mercy and forgiveness from Christ. What about you? Has God's mercy and forgiveness changed you? And if so, how are you going to live your life today? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. Thank you that even though we're impatient, you teach us to wait and wait on the fullness of your redemption. Thank you, Lord, that we can be ambassadors of that hope that we find through Christ. And we can, you can use every person in this room to proclaim the hope that we have given through your Son. We pray this all in your Son's name.